eighth and, and happened circumstances and so on. And then in the 60s, Joseph Fletcher, who, who was the con, had the concept of moral uh, relativism and situation ethics and, and the new morality. For, for, for thousands of years, there was a standard of morality. And now within the last within the last few years, really, within the last couple of hundred years, it's all changed. It's all gone away. And with God no longer part of the equation, by the 1960s, Madeline Murray O'Hare goes to court and gets this book excised from the fabric of the American educational system, gets prayer taken out of our schools. And by the way, when we had the Bibles there and when we had prayer there, I don't know of any school shootings. Now, there may have been, I'm not saying, I'm not saying absolutely there were no, I, but I know of none. Now, it's every, so often we have, we, 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 it's like we've taken the good away. Remember we talked about the, what a vacuum does, it sucks in whatever's around it. We've taken the absolute good away, and, and the, what has been sucked in is the chaos and confusion that lives in our society today. Morality and what is right and wrong has come from Almighty God. I, the Lord, do not change, he says. And, and also the writer of the Hebrews says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That which is right does not change, no matter what the laws of society say. That which is wrong does not change, no matter who says it's right. Morality is inextricably tied to the core of who God is. And what's wrong today is wrong tomorrow. Rights and wrongs don't change for the simple reason that God, who is the author of what is right and wrong, never changes. God's law was given to Moses, and there was a ceremonial part to it, and there was a civil part to it, also including certain hygiene ex parts and applies to hygiene and cleanliness and so on, and then the moral law. There were those three parts. But Moses, who we say was the lawgiver, was not really the lawgiver. God was the lawgiver. God met with Moses on Sinai. God gave him the Ten Commandments. God gave him more than that. God gave him the books of Deuteronomy, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, that spell out more than just the Ten Commandments that he was, God was and is the lawgiver. If God is not the communicator, if he's no longer the creator, and he's renounced as the arbitrator between right and wrong, then what we see is what we get in America today. Hey, here's a quote from Stephen Carter university law professor in Yale. I don't know if he, what his belief system is, but he says this, we are paying the price for having banished religion from public life. Pretty powerful quote. The Bible says, your eternal word, O Lord, stands forever firm in heaven. Psalm 119, verse 89. And again, Psalm 119 starts out, blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord, and 176 verses talk about the law of God and how important it is. So what is, what is the word? That was introduction. We'll be out of here by dinner time. Uh, I'm talking six, 5 or 6 o'clock. Uh, what does the word Bible mean? The, the, the English word Bible comes from the Greek word biblios, which means book. To the Christian, it's not a book. It is the book. It is the most important book. It's also called scriptures, 
It's also called holy writings. They're collectively called the Word of God. They are composed of 39 Old Testament or Old Covenant books, 27 New Testament or New Covenant uh, books, canonization uh, or determining what was included in those 39 and 27 books is another topic for another whole day. We would be here until tomorrow if we started trying to go into that right now. But suffice it to say, it is made up of 66 books written by 40 or so authors over a period of 1,800 to 2,000 years, and we have the word of Almighty God, inspired of God. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding. In other words, it's not a matter of one's own statements and interpretation or from human initiative. The Holy Spirit moved these prophets and they spoke from God. They were moved upon. How many like to sail? I'm on a sailboat, okay? The wind catches the sail and moves the boat along, moves it. And so these authors were moved upon in the passive sense. Their words were God-breathed. He exhaled into their sails, and it carried them uh, along. They, they, were, they were moved to write using their vocabularies, using their artistic styles, using their backgrounds uh, to record exactly what God wanted preserved as his word. They were not some kind of robotic recording devices. Timothy, Paul, talking to Timothy, said this way, all scripture is inspired, God breathed by God, and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do right. God used this to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. There are three different Greek words that mean breathe. Sukane means to breathe gently. Just kind of real gentle, gentle breath. Iron means to breathe unconsciously, like when you're asleep. Are you thinking about breathing when you're asleep? I remember one time I was getting ready to go to sleep, and for some reason it popped in my brain, I'm going to be sleeping, and what if I forget to breathe? So I didn't go to sleep right away for a while, really. <laughs> and then there's Theos 9, which means forcible conscious respiration. <sighs> That's the word used in 2 Timothy chapter 3. God forcibly exhaled, and, and the, the inspiration was verbal and plenary. It was word for word, and it was complete. It was not him giving a thought to someone. It was him giving the words and, and inspiring them to write what he wanted write, written verbally and plenarily. It is not just the idea, but the very words. So why do I believe that? I believe this is a supernatural book. And we get into some proofs of it. We have more ancient copies and manuscripts of the Bible than we do any other ancient writing in the world. How does it compare? The manuscript credentials are what verify authors of ancient books. Nobody knows Shakespeare that's alive today. Nobody knew him personally. Uh, nobody knew the, the Aristotle and, and, and uh, all those guys. I mean, uh, so what do we depend on? We depend upon ancient literature, ancient work that's been verified. There are seven manuscripts of the writings of Plato that survived through the years. Seven. They exist today. Greek historians 
Thucydides and Herodotus, and if I mispronounce those, please forgive me. I have no idea how to say it. Each have eight copies of their works around today. Roman historian Levy has ten, the same number of manuscripts shown to, to exist of Caesar's Gallic Wars, and the writings of the historian Tacitus uh, have 20 existing copies. The record for the greatest number of ancient manuscripts known to exist go to Homer with his Iliad having been preserved in 643 known pieces. Not holes, but pieces. It's a lot of manuscript evidence, 643. By way of contrast, the Old Testament has over 10,000 whole or parts preserved. Add to the thousands of copies of the Septuagint. The Septuagint was the Old Testament translated into Greek a couple of hundred years before Christ was even born. So they had the, they had the whole, the Jews had the whole of the Old Testament translated into Greek and other languages by that point in time. 200 years before Christ. That means the prophecies about Jesus coming were already settled not only in Hebrew, but in Greek, a couple of years before Christ was even conceived. So we have 10,000 whole or part copies, plus all of the, all of the Septuagint and the, and, and the uh, other versions that were available to Christ. And by the way, in 1947, anybody know what happened that was significant in the way of manuscripts? Huh? Dead Sea Scrolls? Anybody hear about the Dead Sea Scrolls? A little shepherd boy out throwing rocks in a cave or whatever comes across some, some clay pots, and in those clay pots are manuscripts that have been preserved, coincidentally preserved. Don't believe in coincidences. God incidences. That were put there at the time of Christ. And they were discovered in 1947. And guess what these manuscripts in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they're called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Guess what they substantiate? That we have word for word the words of God in the Old Testament. We have them word for word. With this data available to validate the authenticity, the Old Testament is far more trustworthy than the least, un the least unquestioned of, of other ancient texts. I mean... 643 of the Iliad, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of the Word of God, the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? How credible it is when it's stacked up to these works. Uh, the New Testament documents don't come to us in 7, 8, 10, or even 643 copies, but we have more than 24,000 discovered manuscripts of the New Testament. More than 5,000 of these are Greek manuscripts providing ample proof for the content of the biblical books. Philosopher and religion professor Winfred Cordian says, no other ancient document equals the New Testament when it comes to the preservation of manuscripts, both in terms of number and closeness in time to the original autographs, when they were originally pinned on whatever medium they were pinned on. F.F. Bruce says, English scholar, the evidence for our New Testament writings is ever so much greater than the evidence for Many writings of classical authors, the authenticity of which no one dreams of questioning, and they only question the Bible. They don't question all the other ancient writings.